Welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman, your host and CEO of Bregman Partners. This podcast is part of my mission to help you get massive traction on the things that matter most. I am here with Dan Cable, and I know that we're fortunate to have him on the podcast today because I've already spoken with him for a little bit, and he's a joy. Dan is a professor of organizational behavior at London Business School, and he's written most recently the book Alive at Work. This is what it looks like if you're looking at the video, Alive at Work, the neuroscience of helping your people love what they do. Dan, welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Thanks a lot. This is going to be fun. You write in this book that happiness at work isn't a motivational problem, it's a biological one, and it's based on what neuroscientists call our seeking systems. So that's the basic premise. What is a seeking system? How did you come to learn about it? And why is it engaging you right now? Well, I wish somebody had told me about it a long time ago, to be honest. I was a psychology uh, undergrad, and it's just not something that we ever talked about. Maybe they didn't know about it yet. I'm not sure. It is the case that a lot of these things we now think we know about the brain, I think, came about through these fMRIs and trying to kind of track where the blood's moving. And to be honest, that's a kind of new invention. So, But um, as near as I can tell, um, there is a part of our brain that urges us to go out and explore what we don't know. And it urges us this from being a baby. You know, one of the things that I like to think about um, is if you have a little kid and you give it some great toy, um, it can be sparkly and it can sing to them and they get really into it. And then after about two days, they'd be more interested in your car keys. (laughs) It's just that boredom with the old and that interest in the new and it's not just humans um it also for instance if you have a bear and it's in a cave it's got food it's warm it goes out ambling it's got shelter it's got food it goes out looking it doesn't even know what it's looking for it just kind of ambles around or like if you've got zoo animals and you give them the food on a plate they become depressed and aren't as happy as if you hide it or let them chase it so this part of our brain, not just our brain, it seems to s- cause us to seek out information and experiences, and um, it's really relevant to work, as I think maybe we're going to talk about a little bit. Yeah, so let, let's spend a couple of minutes just testing this idea, because I think it's a really interesting idea, and, I, and, it, it, um, and, and while I see it, right, I can see it really clearly in myself, I could see it in other people. I also see this other urge, right, or this other drive for people for conformity and routine. And I think about, you know, conversations I've had with people who are experts in, in diet and talk about how, you know, part of the reason we have obesity is because our, our bodies are wired to eat high calorie foods, because it's the most efficient thing we can, we can eat the most in the shortest amount of time and that we, we try to drive for efficiency and repetition. And so these two ideas, it seems to be two, you know, if they're both biological urges, it seems to be two competing biological urges. And I'm curious whether you've done any research around this or seen that or what your thoughts are. Yeah. Well, one of the things that's really, I think, worth putting out there is I'm not a neuroscientist. You know, I'm a psychology guy that stumbled on this literature. I've read a lot of it, but, you know, it doesn't mean that I am sort of the expert in this. But let's let's given that, let's talk about it. And I appreciate that already. So thank you. Yeah. 
Um, but one of the things, there are these competing mechanisms. It appears really clear, for example, that there is a seeking system and there's a fear system and they fight. Meaning that if we feel anxious and we feel that there's some threat, and let's say that that threat comes from within our own group, there's almost no question right now that A, that anxiety focuses us on the threat and screens out the bigger world. And B, if the threat comes from within your group, there's a tendency to conform, to fit in, to put your head down. Because I can tell you, for most of the time, ostracism meant death. Right, right. And you see that all the time. I mean, as soon as an organization starts talking about layoffs or starts going through hard times, everybody gets smaller. Yep. Right. And everybody starts to conform. So I really like how you're bringing this up um, because it's always more complex than we humans think it is. You know, we're only so good at understanding things. And I've also read and also interviewed um, Jock Panksepp. The, he's the affective neuroscientist that I sort of dug into the most. And, you know, I read his textbook and all of this. He thinks of it almost as um, a gas pedal which might be seen as the seeking system. It drives us to kind of get out there and explore. And the brakes, which slow us down and keep us safe. And you can push down on either, but if you put them both to the floor, the brakes always win. Meaning that the fear is stronger than the seeking system, that anxiety will beat out curiosity. You talk about fear as kryptonite, right, in the book. Yeah, and, so fear is kryptonite. That's exactly it. That it's sort of um, bad is stronger than good. And throughout evolutionary history, staying alive is more important than play. This seems like such a key thing to talk about, Dan, because we all feel both of those things. And fear often wins out. And there's often things that happen in our lives that seem to, you know, post-event rationalize the intelligence of the fear, right? To say, see, like it's a good thing. And, and the seeking system is by definition risky and adventurous. And so what, you know, we're going to, maybe we're jumping the gun here and we should talk a little more about the seeking system first, but I'm curious about what you've learned or what you've seen, and this is a psychological question maybe as much as a neuroscience question, um, what you've learned or what you've seen about balancing those two so that we, you know, so that we don't think when someone yells at us it, that it's, you know, a saber-toothed tiger, right? We've heard that a lot, right? That, that we're constantly in the state of adrenaline because everything rises to threat level that, that produces fear when it really doesn't need to. How do we check and balance these two systems? Yeah. Yeah. And my favorite way to think about that is in the context of work. And if we if we if you're willing, if you're interested in using that, at least as an example, I think it can kind of teach some things. I bet you it generalizes. But in a work setting and specifically, how would a leader get the most out of people by deploying the right emotions? I think that is a really interesting and important question right now. And for me, the thing that's so compelling is I think that the answer has changed. That's what's really neat. I mean, if I was to put it out there in one minute, and then you can keep digging in or whatever. No, go so for it. Cool. That's great. I think it's so interesting to think about how during the Industrial Revolution, um, we did this experiment. We kind of beta tested this thing where we said, let's take work processes and then instead of having five people do them or three people, like in a shoe cobbler, <laughs> let's have 30,000 or 50,000 or 150,000. 
And then let's not let everybody see the whole work process. Let's snap it into these tiny little bits where everybody does repetitively the same basic thing, sometimes 10, sometimes 100 times a day. And let's cause them to be ruthlessly efficient at getting that sort of repetitive thing done. And so they get really, really good at it. Well, if what you want is targeted, focused work where you screen out the rest of the environment and you cause people to conform, then it makes sense to provoke a lot of fear. And so we started, and I don't mean to be evil, mind you. I just mean that we want consistency, we want quality, we want things shipped on time. We got a lot of people to manage and we can't trust them. So what we're going to do is we're going to measure the heck out of them and we're going to dangle extrinsic rewards. And if they don't meet it, then we take away the extrinsic reward. And by the this, way, unless less listeners think that you're just talking about old style 1900s, you know, factories and manufacturing situations. I worked at a very, very large consulting firm that was based on that very principle, right? It was not based on creative solutions to client problems. It was based on replicating methodology across 30,000 people and making sure that everybody doing it in the same way. And the idea, I'm really glad you brought that up. The idea can be that you're doing very intellectual work, say as a lawyer or as a consultant, but they've got their processes and they mean for you to follow them and to the letter and to the people doing that, it often does feel a bit like the industrial revolution in the sense that they don't really see the beginning of the work and they don't really see the end of the work. And there's a really strong routine or script that they need to follow to get the work done. And so even though it's using cerebral instead of manual, it often ends up feeling that same way. So thank you for bringing that up. Very interesting. It's a nice catch because I do think that there is a tendency to say, oh, yeah, but I mean, we're not talking about truck drivers or people that load iron. You know, this isn't pig iron that we're talking about. Right. <laughs> anyway, that's, that's great. So here's the thing that I, I think is an insight. Um, the insight is that Today, leaders seem a lot more keen to get things like creative solutions that the leader doesn't have to tell you, or at least that's what they tell me they want. They tell me the world is moving so quick that they need proactive, engaged employees that think like owners. This is exactly the words that they use, that we need innovation and creativity from the ground up. We need that organic innovation. That's what they say. Right. But they're still provoking the old school fears and anxieties. And what I'm really passionate about is this idea that we've got this seeking system right there under the surface. It's built for this. It's built for exploration. It's built for innovation. But to activate it, we need to stop activating the anxiety and the fear. So this whole notion of the brakes and the gas and thinking about how do we balance them is very ripe. That's a that's a really fertile area that we could keep going at for a while. Great. Well, let's talk about that intersection because we all know people who, you know, you really need to push to experiment and to explore and to learn and that they sort of want to stay. That's why it's called a comfort zone, right? They're in their comfort zone. And what you're saying is the seeking system naturally drives people out of their comfort zone. And yet we have organizational structures and cultures and also you know, our own internal biological systems also competing that say, let's stay inside our comfort zone. It's safer. Yeah. And if you have, yeah. you know, you're saying it's safer and then the organization is saying experiment, but don't make mistakes and take risks, yes. but don't fail. That That's we've it. got all of this sort of competing dynamic. Help us out here, Dan. We're all stuck. Wow. 
Um, first off, I love that you just use the word safety because the concept of psychological safety is one of the most robust phenomenons that we seem to know about if you want to drive innovation and creativity. Right. The idea that a leader can create that culture, I find compelling and interesting. It's almost like a spider weaves a web and you almost can't see each thread, but then when it's done, it's doing something that is incredible and beautiful. And I, sometimes I think about psychological safety or other constructs that you can't see it and you can't grab it, but we know that leaders are able to weave it and we know that when they weave it, it sort of catches good ideas. It's a really interesting analogy for me. I, I love it. And it's so, I mean, I was just talking with the team yesterday about the need for, you know, you look at the Google teams and that, you know, that have this psychological safety, that create psychological safety in a way that really great ideas come. What do they do? What are a couple of things you can teach leaders to weave yes. that web? I love it, man. This is really getting into the meat now because when you get tactical and practical with it, you're really talking, for example, about using growth mindset language and creating these safe spaces. Uh, I call them sandboxes or playground. Everybody calls them different things. It doesn't matter. But if we just talk briefly about those two things, uh, that gets us off the ground. That like gets the thing levitated. And then you can just keep going deeper. Right. You know, as, yeah. Okay. So let's talk about growth mindset language. Um, a lot of people know about growth mindset now. This is Carol Dweck's classic work on how do you think about learning? And as you just emphasized really nicely, in many organizations that are large, structured, and use extrinsic rewards, they think about learning as failure. Uh, things that are not predicted often mean that we are startled. And innovation means we're not sure how it's going to go. Now, when it goes great, they call that a success, and they're more than happy to celebrate a success. But when they learn something they didn't expect and it goes badly, they call that a failure. <laughs> they call that a mistake. They call that an error. And it's not just that they want to beat people up. They actually see it that way. Right. That seems to be the root of the magic. And I actually mean magic here. I find it to be incredibly interesting that we can change the reality by how we think of the reality. Right. So if you think, if you see mistake, then you often start talking and acting as though it's an error. And then what gets communicated is don't do that anymore, which means you stop innovation and creativity. It's not safe. If you as a leader see learning, how interesting, I wouldn't have expected that. What else can we learn? How can we keep the bits that worked and get rid of the bits that didn't work? Isn't this interesting? Right. That way of thinking and communicating, and even, by the way, the nonverbal expressions, even the most minor that you walk by and you've done something wrong and the boss gives you that, as opposed to a... Yeah, I want to I, say not just even, but especially. Like, I think those have more of an impact. That's a great point. What I'm curious about, Dan, is the there's two ways to go. One is to stop using the word failure. Right. There are no failures. There are just learning, learning opportunities and things that work out. The other is to redefine what we mean by failure is to say, yeah, that failed, which is really helpful to us because yes, it, it informs us of what works. That's what I wanted to know. So you think that's better. So don't try to I avoid failure honest. because otherwise people sort of feel like you're being fake and new agey and whatever it is. But instead to say that was a failure, which is really helpful to us because of X, Y and Z. That's right. And the idea that 
if we rack up failures and we are learning from each of them, what we're learning is how to win. And we're also learning how to learn. Right. I, I just, I feel like this notion of modeling growth mindset, which is, there's no one way to do it. It's not like what we're trying to do is craft the exact language that leaders use, but this idea of getting it inside your brain, that innovation means that we don't know how it's going to go. Right. And if you're never surprised, it means you're not actually innovating. Right. <laughs> you know? Right. Right. So right. That's a really important start. And there's a thousand things we can say about that. A very connected piece of this is building a safe space to practice, to learn, to try, meaning that if you're going to try to go to a different sales mechanism away from like, oh, we've got this suite of sales items and then we're going to teach each salesperson the attributes and then we're going to send them out there to try to sell those. And now we want to move to consultative selling where it's more of a conversation to try to understand the client's needs. And then we try to invent or reuse different products to solve their problem. Before we just send people out there, let's do a bunch of role plays. You know, it's something as easy as that. Let's bring some of the customers that are closest to us in to be part of those role plays. Let's define what we mean by winning and losing um, in the context of an offsite where it's kind of fun. We're laughing. Nobody's getting hurt. Nobody's losing their sales bonuses. And I think that while that's not very hard, it is dedication. It's an investment. It is time away from the work. And so many leaders forget that you can't just automatically know the new behavior perfectly. Yeah, uh, what you're I saying, almost, yeah, there's, there's something really important about what you're saying, which is that it's very hard to stay in business as usual, which, you know, and you talk in, in the book about um, the freedom in the frame. And I want to talk about that, too, because I think that's useful here. Because if everybody was just, you know, out there experimenting, innovating, doing everything individually on their own, the organization would be all over the place. And that That's you right. need some collective direction and alignment of people who are moving in the same direction, working That's together, right. and can expect things from each other. And, and kind of, you know, routine and habit becomes important. But literally taking people out of that space, removing them from the time and the space of efficiency to a place of inefficiency and lack of productivity in right. order to then take that leap in productivity feels really, really critical, which is what I'm hearing you say. Yes. And I like how even the language still feels awkward, doesn't it? Like inefficiency. Of, yes. I mean, and I, I really like what you just did right there because many leaders that I work with still would be extremely uncomfortable saying, I'm going to invest in an inefficient process. Right. It's it's just not a way that we have cut our teeth. You know, we're really still students of the 1950s and it doesn't mean we're bad. It just means that as the world changes quicker and quicker, we're seeing that those styles and that vernacular have a set of assumptions that we aren't in touch with. And as we raise those assumptions up and look at them, we can we can say, oh, no, 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 we don't want to be that. But we are still that in some interesting ways. Yeah. And I and I to be fair, I think it's not just the 1950s. Every leader who's listening to this both wants that kind of learning and growth and innovation 
and they've got targets and they've got goals and they have to produce something and they have to be accountable to deliver something to a client somewhere. And so it's this balance, like it's balancing the seeking system with fear and like it's balancing sort of productivity with, with creation and innovation, which is by nature inefficient. It's, it's, it's this balance that says I'm going to give up some of that efficient productivity in order yeah. to take a leap. And in order to do that, it's going to feel like I'm taking a step back. That's right. Uh, to throw a little bit of um, science under this thing, Roy Baumeister wrote a really cool article that was called Bad is Stronger Than Good. And it's one of the things that I get tripped up on a lot, which is if we have the opportunity to trigger both the fear and the seeking system, that fear system is generally going to dominate our perceptions and our emotions. And so when we talk about balance, as you just said it, my mind was doing something where we have to sort of almost intentionally unbalance it in order to balance it. It's a really interesting thought. It's, it's this idea that the default's going to be policies, rules, controls, KPIs, regulations, conformity, uh, following process. I mean, there's, that's heavy. If you think of it as a teeter-totter, right? That's a heavy, uh, scripted, following the rules, conforming to the process, uh, knowing that if I don't, somebody's ca- carefully watching and catching me up on it, right? So that if we're going to balance it, we probably have to shift pretty hard. We have to shift a lot of energy and momentum toward being playful. So like, here's, here's an example of this. We know that in the 360 literature, when people go out and sort of get these reports saying, here's where you thought you were good, and here's where other people thought you were good, conceptually, those reports give you both good and bad news. There's a couple of surprises where you're a little better than you thought, and people write little nice things about you. And then there's some things that, oh, you're not quite as good as you thought on this, and they write some things that are sort of, oh, daggers. It's been demonstrated that we remember and think about those daggers a lot more than we remember the good stuff. It's like it just goes, boof, toward the negative. Right. And I believe that to overwhelm that, what we have done uh, is we started giving out reports where we only focus on the positive. We, it's not saying that we don't have limitations. It's not saying that we can't all get better. But in this report, we call it a best self-report. We're just going to have a bunch of people write about when they've seen you in flow, when they've seen you at your very best, when they've contributed, when you've contributed the most to them. And so they get 20, 30 stories written about them where they're sort of looking for the negative. You know, they're so used to finding it. <laughs> but to be honest, what it ends up being is just a overwhelmingly positive appreciation jolt. And it's not to say that we don't also have to improve, but it's to say that that's invigorating, that that lets the dopamine flow, that that causes you to be enthusiastic about changing. People want to be their best self more often. Uh-huh. They feel, yeah. So um, this conversation is really- and here's, and here's the question that, that I know a lot of people, it's going to be in a lot of people's minds as they're listening to it. Does that drive performance and learning and growth? It seems to develop self-growth. There's a lot of evidence that suggests that negative information causes people to put up defenses around themselves. Right. Uh, And so if you want to internalize the learning and have it affect their self-definition, 
that seems to be really good. It's almost like the evidence around, this is kind of a weird thing. I've never thought about this too much, but like, do you ever hear that thing about if you want to train an orca well, um, you, you got to go with praise, not punishment. You know, I, I believe you. I haven't actually heard that, but I, but I believe you. I just haven't done a lot of work training orcas, but orcas, dogs, apparently it's pretty clear that you want to catch them doing something right. Right. Um, and so many of us don't really believe that so many of us as parents, so many of us as leaders, so many of us about ourselves. I think that we have a perception that the way to get better is to focus on what I'm weak at. And there's some um, pretty good evidence suggesting that if you can find what we're the best at and then use that to leverage into becoming better, it kind of creates hope rather than fear. And what seems to happen is once you want to get better, once you have that internal need or drive or motivation, then you have to fix up weaknesses to improve. So That's interesting. So it's not you're not telling a story about ignoring the weaknesses and just follow your strengths and leverage that. You're saying get to the point of groundedness where you are confident enough That's to it. then look at your your the things that you need to fix. Yes. The fancy word for that is self-affirmation. That you feel good enough about yourself that you're ready to take on the bad news. That's pretty interesting. Um, but this conversation, I think, starts to clarify how hard it is to balance all of this. Yeah. Especially in an organization where you might have, for example, six people with the same job and a limited pool for raises. Right, right. It's so a, now all yeah. of a sudden we can all play to our strengths, but who gets the raise? Right, right, right. I think that's the reality of it and that's the challenge. And I think that what I've loved about this conversation, Dan, is it's, you know, there's a, there's a lot of data here. There's a lot of really interesting insights that you have and you don't um, sugarcoat the ultimate complexity. And the ultimate complexity, it feels to me, is that there's a lot of balancing that needs to happen. There's, you know, there's, there's adventure seeking, risk seeking, and also fear and trepidation and resistance. And there's sort of reasons to go out of the comfort zone and to stay in the comfort zone. And there's strengths and there's weaknesses. And we're trying to sort of fine tune around the edges to make sure that we're leveraging our systems in such a way that we continue to grow and learn and, and, um, and kind of move forward and, and, and are motivated, kind of self-motivated. Uh, and it's complicated. It's not, it's not so simple because there are competing biological needs and there are competing sort of structures. And it seems like the more we're aware of them, the more right. we can begin to see how they play in and the more we can, you know, push this lever here or tweak that a little bit over there in order to get that balance right. I think that's, that's very good. And I, my, my sense is that these three levers – that I mentioned in the book. I like the word leverage and I like the word tweak. It's not that you try to change the whole organization at once. It's that, for example, if you can get people to consider and think about who they are when they're at their best, and then to start thinking about their job as a platform for trying some of those activities that light you up the most. Mm -hmm. Not that you don't have the frame of the job, not that you don't have the customer that has to get a good product on the right date, but just saying that the way that you go about doing it might be different from the way that I go about doing it. That's not shifting everything. It's no, but not it's, it's what you call freedom in the frame. And that's you talk it. about those three self-expression, experimentation and purpose, which is, you know, an ability to play with all of those. That's it.
So I think it's really, it's great to think of those as nudges or tweaks or high leverage maneuvers because I think it's a bit overwhelming otherwise. And I'm thinking like if I was working at Accenture or if I was working at some big, you know, 100, 200,000 person organization and then the whole thing is now we got to play, you know, now we got to just let people be free. What goes to your mind is sort of chaos. You know, it's it's that, um, ah, it's what you kind of brought up a little while ago at Google. It's great when you have 100 engineers and you give them all 20% of their time just to play. When you have 18,500 engineers, 20% of their time playing means a lot of flowers blooming, but nobody's harvesting. Right, right, right. So I think that Sergi said that thing about um, we have too many arrows and not enough wood behind them. Right. Yeah, that's so, interesting. Right, right. It's, it really does go back to that concept of balancing innovation with, well, I guess you could use the word execution. Right. It's, it's how do we deliver the right thing on the right date following the regulations that government gives us? How, how do we do that job and also make people feel lit up that they're adding something unique to the team? that it's not all scripted, that there's areas where they can play and sort of right. push on the edges of knowledge. I mean, that balance is really what we're talking about. That's great, Dan. And, it, and just mentioning arrows and talking about this frame, it brings me to a lot of the work that we do, which we call Big Arrow, which is to create a frame to say, what's the most important thing to achieve over the next 12 months? And nice. then who are the key contributors and coaching each of them to make that key contribution. But there's the individual piece where you're coaching them individually. And there's the collective piece yeah. of where you're all moving in the same direction. And it feels like that, I mean, that's the balance I am constantly trying to work on in the work that we're doing, which yep. is how do you have, how do you bring out the best in people, but in an aligned way where they're collectively, you know, moving together to achieve some shared mutual outcome. And, right. and it's, and your book really informs that in many ways. It's about, you know, how do you, what, what are some of the levers that you can push in order to, in order to keep people moving in that direction, the freedom within the frame, the keep people moving in that direction that it's a direction and they're self-motivated because they've got some of those natural neurological, biological systems that are working in their favor. The book is Alive at Work. Dan Cable is who we've been talking with, the neuroscience of helping your people love what they do. Dan, I have loved what I've been doing for the past 30 minutes and talking to you. So something's working about this book. It's a great book. And thank you so much for being on the Bregman Leadership Podcast. What a joy. Thanks for having me. hope you enjoyed this episode of the Bregman Leadership Podcast. If you did, it would really help us if you subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. A common problem that I see in companies is a lot of busyness, a lot of hard work that fails to move the organization as a whole forward. That's the problem that we solve with our Big Arrow process. For more information about that or to access all of my articles, videos, and podcasts, visit peterbregman.com. Thank you, Claire Marshall, for producing this episode, and thank you for listening.